Amen. Well, it is so good to see you. How are you feeling today? Woo! All right. Very, very uh, a good time. I'm excited about what uh, everything that is going to happen in this service. I was uh, looking this week, and I was thinking, and I was talking to my mom. My mom is still in the United States. She's a single mom. I'm her only child. It was her birthday a couple of days ago. Yeah, so I was able, praise God, through technology, to give her a call. And you know how I did that? The Facebook. Yeah, okay. So how many of you remember when, uh, they should have called it the Facebook. It's like, you know, the, like it's cool, but they didn't. Uh, How many of you remember when Facebook came out? Let me see your hand. Yeah, okay. Some of us showing our age. That's awesome. That was the thing, okay? So I remember 2006, I, I graduated, I matriced, I graduated high school, matriced, and I went on to university in Dallas, Texas, which was the big city for me. Boyfriend, but I didn't care because she wasn't married. So, <laughs> hey, if they ain't married, saw this beautiful girl, spent some time with her, and that night I messaged her on the Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> Woo! Back then, you had to actually have an email that ended in the letters E-D-U, which stood for education in America, because it was only for university students. Like, So I'm talking this OG days of Facebook. And I understand it was actually created to meet girls, and hey, it worked. So praise God. <laughs> I sent her a message on Facebook, said, hey, I love spending time with you, and I just feel like there's more there. And what's really cool is I can go back on my messages on my phone today, and I can see that original message that we sent to one another back and forth that first night. See, the thing was about Facebook when it came out, which was, was so crazy, uh, Facebook was something that was abnormal, it was different, it was odd. And Facebook began to realize, hey, we can make some money off of this if we met. They made billions and billions of dollars as they were really the, so, the first social media platform that completely changed marketing and advertising. They disrupted the market for advertising that existed at that time. And nowadays, I mean, really, if if you're a company or an organization and you are not advertising on social media platforms, then like you are way behind the times, right? So it's interesting that what was at one point odd, it was abnormal, it was very disruptive to the status quo. Now we look back almost 20 years later and we're like, it's the new normal. See, we've been talking about, as Pastor Meredith pointed out, we've been talking about revival. And and what does it really mean? Because we can come with all of these backgrounds and past baggage maybe of what revival is. Or we can say, I have no idea what that means. Like revive, like resuscitate. What does that even mean? Here's what we've been saying. We've been saying that revival is a season of God's disruptive movement among his people for his glory. See, we have been experiencing a revival here at North Place. I truly believe that in my heart. We've been feeling that since the beginning of the year, but just really over the past month, we have been experiencing a revival. We have been experiencing God's disruptive power right here in this place. And in talking with some of you, you are experiencing it in your business. Woo, 
Praise God. You are experiencing it in your family. God is bringing things back to life. We're experiencing revival. And can I tell you, after this week, we're not the only ones. God is moving in Kenya. God is moving in Ethiopia. God is moving all across this globe. Why is he doing that? It's among his people, and you got to catch it, and it's the most important piece for his glory. It's not for us to stand up and say, "Woo, look at us, <laughs> right? Like, we're awesome, look out. No, 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 it is for the glory of God. I believe with all of my heart, we're going to look back a year from now, and we're going to say, man, look at this new normal, that people are coming to Jesus Christ in faith, that families are being restored, that businesses are being blessed, that the economy of South Africa is turning around. I am tired of speaking death over Durban. I'm done. I'm just going to be honest. I am tired of bashing the government and how messed up and chaotic. No, 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 no. I am ready to speak life over this city because we as the church can say, Jesus Christ, you are the reviver. You are the one that brings life and you can do all things and governments for millennia. And he can do it again. I think we're going to look back a year from now, five years from now, maybe 50 years from now, our children and our grandchildren will be here or they'll be all across the globe and they'll say, I remember when I met God at that youth service at North Place Church. I remember when I was sitting in kids ministry and I experienced the power of God when Miss Hazel was bringing a lesson and I remember understanding and hearing that God loves me and I have never forgotten that. We're in that disruptive season and I love it. I'm loving it. As a community of faith, God is moving. The past couple of weeks, we have discussed not only just the the community revival that we believe God is bringing, but we've mentioned here and there about the personal revivals as well. Pastor Randy talked to us last week about setting the atmosphere of anticipation. What are you going to do today? What are you going to do today? I believe God wants to disrupt not only just our community of faith, but I I believe he also wants to disrupt us on an individual basis as well. This morning, we're going to dive into this idea of the personal revival a little bit more. And we're going to look in scripture and see a man who uh, uh, was really, he experienced a personal revival and a major disruption in his life. And it was needed. How many of you know the story of Jacob or you've ever heard it? Can you raise your hand? Story of Jacob in the Bible. Okay, awesome. So maybe about half. That's good. So we're going to look at the story of Jacob this morning. And and we're not going to look at the whole thing, but it's found in the book of Genesis, the first book of your Bible. And it's actually recorded in chapters 25 through 35. We're not going to read all 10 chapters today. That's a joke. You can laugh. Okay. We're not going to read all of it today, but we are going to look at the life of Jacob this morning, and we're going to learn about personal revival. We're introduced in Genesis chapter 25 to a man and a woman by the name of Isaac and Rebekah. And this lady, Rebekah, she is pregnant with twin boys. Verse 24 says this, Genesis, there were twin boys. Verse 24 says, when the time came for her to give birth, The first to come out was red, and his whole body (laughs) was like a hairy garment. The original Sasquatch, 
right here. You know what I mean? I think I've seen this guy at the beach. <laughs> no, just kidding. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> like, bro, you got to take care of that. Verse 26. <laughs> After this, his brother came out with his hand grasping Esau's hill, and so he was named Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when Rebekah gave birth to them. 60 years old, having twin babies. Woo! Blessing, Lord. The boys grew up. Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the open country. You know. While Jacob <laughs> was content to stay at home among the tents, Isaac, who had a taste for wild game, loved Esau. But Rebecca loved Jacob. Wow. How many, I, let's be honest, we all have favorite kids, okay? Let, I'm just, that's a joke. I'm just, dang. I love all of my kids the same. Connor, Abby, Doss, and my Corgi, Charles. Okay, so 25% for each one. <laughs> this is a messed up family when you read about it. I, I'm telling you, if you like drama, if you're one, if it's okay, if you if you dig the Real Housewives, I saw the advertisement in the airport, Real Housewives of Durban. I was like, what? We got Real Housewives. What's up? <laughs> wow, look at us. Didn't know that. If you dig drama, read your Bible. Read the book of Genesis. Read a little bit about these people and their stories. And so uh, uh, Isaac and Rebecca had favorite kids. Like, well, that's your son. No, no, that's your boy. No, you know, they had favorites. Jacob was born, and his name means hill catcher, uh, to catch the hill. In their day, though, this was also an expression that meant a trickster or a con artist or a deceiver. That's what Jacob was. I mean, how would you like to have that name? Here comes the deceiver, you know, like, ooh. He was a wily guy. He, he was crafty. Throughout his life, Jacob was driven by a passion to get what he wanted for himself. Whew. It's important for us to wrap our minds around who Jacob is this morning because we need to fully understand the revival, the disruption that is going to happen to him personally. These baby boys, they, they grow up, and, and mommy has her favorite. Rebecca loves Jacob. Daddy has his favorite. He loves Esau. And you, you fast forward a little bit in the story, and the boys are probably in their mid-teens, possibly early 20s. And one day, Esau comes in from hunting. Manly man. You know, I picture him like Gaston from Beauty and the Beast. You know what I'm talking about? Y'all remember that? Pastor Meredith, you want to sing the song? No. <laughs> She is the theater person. So Gaston, or Esau, as we will call him by his real name, he comes in from hunting one day, the Bible says. He's been out in the woods, he's man, hunt. And he comes in, and the Bible says that he's famished. And he literally thinks, like, if I don't get food, I'm going to die. Here's Jacob at home with mom, just whipping up some soup. Well, I guess you're hungry, huh? That's too bad. Because I've been making hot stew all day with mom. 
Esau comes in, he's he's been hunting. We mad, you know, mad hunt. Jacob's at home, chilling with mom, making stew. By the way, can I throw this out there real fast? In our society and in our culture today, we must be very, very careful how we stereotype manhood. What I see biblically, by the example of Jesus Christ, is that manhood is exemplified by sacrificial, unconditional love. Men, if you think you are a man, yet you don't sacrifice and unconditionally love those around you, you ain't a man. I'll save that for the men's conference. Okay. (laughs) Esau is famished and his brother Jacob actually convinces him. He says, well, you're hungry. You're about to die, bro. So, I mean, I got some soup here. And Esau's like, give it to me. He says, okay, just give me your birthright. What what was a birthright? Well, uh, it's basically his inheritance. See, the inheritance the, in their day, the larger portion would always go, when the father died, the larger portion would always go to the oldest son. And so, uh, obviously, Esau was born first. He's the oldest. Jacob is number two. And Jacob says, well, hey, bud, uh, you're hungry. Just give me your inheritance. And Esau says, okay, it's yours. What do I need it for? And so Esau trades his birthright, his inheritance, for a bowl of soup. Hopefully it was some good doll or something, you know, like, (laughs) hopefully it was good soup. Sometime later, Isaac, the the father of these boys, is about to die. You read about this in Genesis chapter 27, 28, 29, and 30. He has lost his eyesight, and the boys now are about 40 years old. And Isaac, the father, he tells his oldest son, Esau, he says, hey, listen, I'm about to die. I'm losing my eyesight. I have lost my eyesight. I'm about to die. But you know what I want before I die? I really want some of that mutton biryani that you make. Woo. (laughs) I really want that mutton that you cook in the poiky pot and it gets tender. and and That's what I want is what Isaac says, maybe. I don't know. He says, just go out kill the animal, come back in, make me some food, feed it to me, and then I will bless you. I'll give you the blessing of your family. So Esau says, okay, okay, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go out and do it. Guess who is on the side of the wall listening to everything? The real housewife of Genesis, Rebecca. (laughs) She goes over, (laughs) OMG. Jacob, guess what I just heard? 40-year-old Jacob, who's single, still living at home with his mother, says, what, mom? You know, (laughs) what do you want, mom? (laughs) She says, listen, I just heard your father say to your older brother that he needs to go out, kill an animal, make him some food, and then bring it back to him, and he would bless him. So listen, here's what you need to do. So Rebecca tells Jacob, hey, here's what you need to do. You go out, kill the animal, bring it in, I'll make the food, and then you give it to your father so that you can receive the blessing of God. Of course, Jacob's like, mom, there's no, I can't do that. He's like Sasquatch, hairy man with the perfect beard. I'm smooth. <laughs> By the way, I'm just jealous of you guys that can grow a full beard, like man beard, like Adam got a good beard. Jealous. Jacob was baby-faced. He couldn't grow a beard. He, didn't, he wasn't a hairy man. And his mom, this is, what, this is how messed up this is. She's like, it's okay. 
we'll kill the animal and then we'll take its hide and its fur and we'll just put it all over you. What? And he agrees to it. That's what's nuts about this. He agrees to the entire thing so that he can receive the blessing. Jacob and Rebekah, they, they deceive his father into thinking that Isaac is blessing Esau. And so Jacob receives the blessing. What does that mean? Well, it was the transfer of leadership of the entire household from Isaac, the father, to the next son. So Esau comes back to his father Isaac. Look at what happens in verse 31 of Genesis chapter 27. It says this. He says, my father, please sit up. This is Esau. Please sit up and eat some of my game so that you may give me your blessing. His father Isaac asked him, who are you? I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Look at this. Isaac trembled violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? I ate it just before you came and I blessed him and indeed he will be blessed. Look, when Esau heard his father's words, he burst out with a loud and a bitter cry. And he said to his father, bless me, me too, my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully and he took your blessing. Deceitfully, Jacob the deceiver. Esau held a grudge against Jacob because of the blessing his father had given him. He said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are near. Then I will kill my brother, Jacob. Boy, he holds a grudge for a long, 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 long time. Esau hates Jacob. And as you read the story of Jacob, you continue to see that he lives a continuous life of deception. He was alienated from his family. His brother hates him, and his brother is counting down the days until he can kill him. So what does Jacob's mom, Rebecca, say? You should go live with your uncle, my brother. So he does. He runs away, and he goes to his uncle's home, a man named Laban, and he ends up marrying two of his daughters, Yes, his first cousins. So he becomes the uncle father-in-law. <laughs> uncle father-in-law or father-in-law uncle? Not sure which one came first. Uncle father-in-law, I guess. What's crazy in the story as you read it is that even his uncle father-in-law, Laban, manipulates Jacob into working for him for 14 years to marry the girls. You reap what you sow oftentimes in life. Jacob continues to live in self-reliance, and he failed to see what God wanted to do in him and through him. But God still had plans for Jacob. He would disrupt his life. He would bring an amazing personal revival to the man, Jacob. And can I tell you this morning that God not only wanted to disrupt his life uh, years and years and years ago, but this morning he wants to disrupt ours as well. He wants to disrupt the continual self-reliance that I live in every day oftentimes. 
He wants to disrupt our manipulative and our objectifying behaviors where we make the entire world about us. He wants to disrupt that. He wants to disrupt our unbelief. Most of you know, some of you don't. Two years ago, I was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. I, I fight the disease MS every single day. And, and oftentimes it looks very, very different for me in different ways. And when I was first diagnosed, I was praying and praying and saying, God, heal me and do something great and all of this. And can I tell you about a month ago, three weeks ago, actually, if you remember the day, I was the day that I felt like revival really started happening. It was the day where we were like, you know what? We're supposed to be done at quarter to 11, but God can disrupt our little pattern today. It's okay. That day power of the Holy Spirit broke in and he said, Aaron, you stop believing. Can I tell you, I felt like I was on an island that morning. I was by myself. There was no one else here. And I knew within my heart of hearts that I had stopped believing God. I was making excuses and theological excuses because, you know, we, we get so smart and we're like, well, you know, he can heal. He'll heal me in heaven and he can do it. And all of these things. Well, what if he doesn't? What if, uh, all of this stuff that we start putting in our mind. Can I tell you, I was so convicted that morning. And if you remember that day, listen, I was like, God, I need you more than anything else because there's nowhere else I can go. There's nothing else I can do. And so that day, God disrupted my life and he revived the belief within me to say, God, you are a healer. I promise you, if no one else comes down here after that third song to pray, you will see me here every single week because I'm praying and believing God heal my body. There's no cure for it. There's nothing. He disrupted my unbelief that day. Can I ask you, what does he want to revive in you this morning? What does he want to bring back to life? What does he want to do in our church corporately? I believe he wants to disrupt our lives on an individual level, but here's what it requires. And Jacob teaches us this, personal revival begins and it continues with a deep inner posture of surrender. Personal revival will only begin and continue in my individual life when I live in a deep inner posture of surrender. You look at the life of Jacob, he has manipulated his brother out of his inheritance. He manipulates his, after 20 years, Jacob flees from his uncle Laban, his uncle father-in-law and his sons, his other cousins, because they wanna kill him too. He's just making friends in all kinds of places, right? They desire to kill him, they wanna take him out. So Jacob leaves, he runs away, and he takes the best of the flocks and the herds, and, and he's now somewhere around 100 years old, and he's on the run again, he's running again. Eventually, his uncle father-in-law, Laban, catches up with him, 
and they make an agreement. The Bible says actually that they, they set up a, 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 a stone boundary, a fence, if you will. And his uncle father-in-law says, listen, bro, as long as you don't cross that line, I won't mess with you and you won't mess with me. You stay on your side, I'll stay on mine. Mm. There's no grudge greater oftentimes than a grudge within family. Jesus, revive relationships today. Revive those. The door is closed on Jacob. He can't go back to his uncle father-in-law's place and stay with him with all of his stuff. And, and Jacob, by this time, and he has wives and servants and kids. He has 11 kids at this time, by the way, that are eventually going to become the 12 tribes of Israel. It's a beautiful story when you read it. And so he can't go backwards to Laban, right? And that door is closed. And what happens? He looks up. He receives the word, your brother Esau is on his way. And Esau's not coming with flowers and his favorite dessert. <laughs> He's not like, hey, bro, brought you some Sochi. No, that's not what's happening. He can't go back to Laban's house, his uncle father-in-law. He looks up and his brother, who 60 years ago said, I'm going to kill you when I see you again. He's on his way and he's not coming alone. He's with 400 men. So Jacob can't go backwards. He can't go forwards. And so what does Jacob, the deceiver, the selfish one, do? He begins to send gifts to his brother. He starts putting his herds and his flocks and his servants in front of him while he stays back. Why? Because everyone and everything was expendable to save his own skin. Uh, I'll take you. You're going to go. You're going to go. Yeah, he'll kill you first. That's fine. You go ahead and we'll, you know, everybody go. <laughs> I'm just going to stay back here, keep an eye on the tents. You guys go ahead. Look at what happens. And it says that night, 30 of Genesis chapter 32, says this. It says that night, Jacob got up and he took his two wives, his two female servants and his 11 sons, and he crossed the ford of the Jebok. Actually, the Hebrew word is like Yebok. I heard that, and I was like, yeah, bo, <laughs> all right. <laughs> There's Zulu in the Bible. Didn't know that. The Yebo River, that's what we're going to say. <laughs> I love this microphone. <laughs> After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all of his possessions. Verse 24, so Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. And the man saw that he could not overpower him. He touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with humans, and you have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask me my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, yet my life was spared. 
personal revival begins and continues with a deep inner posture of surrender. Jacob was alone. Jacob was all by himself in solitude. Think about it. There's nothing more for him to manipulate with, nothing more for him to bargain with. His whole entourage is gone. His tasks and his lists that kept him busy and preoccupied with other things, all the people, all the stuff he was leading, it is gone and he is alone in solitude. You see, solitude has a way of leading us to true surrender in our life. Solitude has a way. And listen, I'm not talking about just simply physically withdrawing, even though that is important at times for you to get away. Jesus did that. He often withdrew into the wilderness. My man, I love just going and sitting in nature in the woods doing nothing. Jesus did it. Physical solitude is a good thing, but I'm not just talking about being alone physically in this moment, but something more than that. I love the way the author in the book called Invitation Solitude, and, and I love this quote, if you'll read it with me, it's in the silence of release, beginning to face the deep inner dynamics of our being that make us that grasping controlling, manipulative person. Ugh, chill out, man. Ugh. Beginning to face our brokenness, our distortion, our darkness, and beginning to offer ourselves to God at those points. Solitude is not simply just drawing away from other people physically, but it's a place where we begin to allow God to point out and disrupt those areas of our lives where we are still broken. Aaron, you've stopped believing me to heal your body. That was, that was three weeks ago. None of us ever get to this place where we have arrived and when we are just perfect and, and, and that we are perfectly all and completely 100% not in need of God to break in and disrupt our life. We never get to that place until we get to heaven where we are with him forever. Solitude is that place where we allow God to point out where we are still living in distortion. Do you remember Pastor Andy talked about thought distortions that we have in our life? If we can get in a place of solitude, it's where we can get to a place where we are allowing ourselves to quiet ourselves, where we can push out the noise. Even if you're by yourself, you can still have a lot of noise up here. You know what I'm talking about? Noise. That was 10 seconds of silence, and some of you were like, <gasps> Why is he not talking? We don't like sitting in silence and solitude, but the reality is silence and solitude lead us to the place of surrender. That's why I strive every single day to follow the instructions of scripture and listen more than I talk. 
I have to, <laughs> I've lived in South Africa now for uh, the United States and America, and I'm amazed there. It is so amazing to watch people talk to each other at the same time. And they're not finished with their sentence, and they're already cutting them off. <laughs> with Sarah and I, especially Sarah, when she does marriage counseling and talks to people, usually the, the, the big light bulb moment is communication. Not trying to form what I'm going to say while my spouse is still talking because I'm ready to defend. Woo, girl, you, I'm about to bring up what happened last week, you know. <laughs> You don't talk about today. Let's talk about last month. You know what I mean? We don't like to be silent. We don't like to be in solitude where we are alone. Can I tell you, you can be in a place with tons and tons of people, but you can still enter a place spiritually where you say, God, I am here. I am yours. I am alone. Whatever you want to do today in my life, do it. You can be sitting in your workplace at your desk on a Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock and be in a place of solitude where you are working, but yet the Spirit of God has access to say, hey, bud, go talk to her and tell her I love her, and that's all I want you to do. Whew. Silence and solitude lead us to a place of surrender. Jacob is alone. He's in this place of solitude. And did you read what happens? It's crazy. He goes into a cage match with God. Whoa. I don't know about y'all. I grew up watching wrestling. <laughs> Somebody told me the other day, they're like, yeah, I watched wrestling until I knew it was fake. I was like, it is not fake. No. Sting. Sting. The <laughs> I met him. He lives in Dallas, Texas. And I was like a little girl, no lie, at an NSYNC concert. I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> it's sting. You know. Man. It's just my culture. I don't know. Like in the south of the United States, we watch wrestling. Monday, Monday night, WWE, Raw, that's what we did. And Jacob enters a cage match with God. The Bible says it's a man, but this is what's known in the, in the scriptures as a theophany in the Old Testament. It, a theophany is a very, very fancy way to make us sound smart to say that it is an appearance, a tangible a manifestation of God in the Old Testament. Somehow, some way, we don't know how. How did he do it? Some people say it was Jesus in the Old Testament. Some say the angel of the Lord. But he knew, Jacob knew, I am wrestling with God because of what he named the place. There I met God. God came that day to confront Jacob in all of his self-reliance and confront all of his deceitful and manipulative ways. He confronted him that, that day to bring about surrender. Surrender. I can imagine that night, because it says he wrestled with God all night. I can imagine at times Jacob thinking, because, you know, he's a deceiver. He, he loves himself. He's like, yeah, I'm winning, you know. You know boom, you know. <laughs> he's got the chokehold. Bow. I can imagine. Could you imagine that night? He thinks, he thinks that he's winning. And then God's like, oh, okay. <laughs> God allowed the match to continue until morning. Until the final blow, and we read about it, where he, Jacob's hip. You ever been hit in the hip? Whew. You ever been hit hard in the hip? It hurts. 
when your hip goes numb. When I was in high school, I played quarterback. <coughs> Sorry. <laughs> you, Adam. Sagu football, what's up? I remember one time I was about to throw a ball, and this massive, probably like Esau, hairy guy smacked me so hard. His helmet went into my hip. And I was just like, <laughs> like it was down, done. God allowed it to continue until the morning. And then he finally tells Jacob, let him go. And Jacob says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Now, listen, I grew up in church. I've heard this preached wrong my entire life. Okay, the way I've always heard it preached you know, Jacob's got God in a chokehold, noogie, not letting you go till you bless me. That's not what it was. This isn't Jacob commanding God to do something or demanding something from God or telling him this is what I want. No, 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 no. If you read the prophet Hosea, it's amazing. The prophet Hosea says that Jacob wept and he begged for favor from God. This is Jacob, the man who just got punched in the hip and knocked down on his knees and begging God, please, God, will you please bless me? Because I deceitfully, I received a blessing from my earthly father way, way, way back then, and it still has not fulfilled my life. Woo. But now you, you are God, and I can't go anywhere, and I cannot do anything until you bless me. Need you. I'm so desperate for you. That is what personal revival and surrender looks like. You don't be, have to be a perfect person to come to Jesus Christ. You don't have to be a perfect person to come to church. We're all broken. We're all messed up. We're all just trying to live this life and, and say, God, I need you every day. But I can't do it alone. I can't do it. Hundreds and hundreds of years later after this situation, Jesus Christ would come. And there's something that we learned from Jacob. There's something that we learned from Christ. And it's this, through surrender, our identity is changed and we are marked. You see, when, when, when we surrender our lives to God and say, I need you can't do this without you. Our identity is changed and we are marked. It's through surrender. God will change that identity and he changed it for Jacob. God, God conquered Jacob and the Bible says that he changed his identity. Did you read it? He says, you're no longer going to be called Jacob. You are going to be called Israel. He went from the deceiver to Israel, which means the one who is ruled by God. He had an identity shift. God conquered Jacob. Years later, Jesus, God in the flesh, would come. He was born in the manger. And listen, this time, he didn't come to just conquer one man named Jacob, but he came to come and to conquer all of sin for all of humanity. And to change our identity. 
Jesus conquered death for you and I to have an identity shift. The Bible tells us that today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to surrender your life to him. Now, hang on, I, I don't have it all figured out and I'm not a perfect person and I don't understand all that. God, I need you. He really does. God, I need you. God, I need you because I can't go back this way. I don't want to go that way. My brother's under there. God, I need you. And I truly believe in my heart that when we make that prayer in our heart, that it is God drawing us to himself and saying, you know that you need me. Surrender your life for it to him today. Jesus, we love you. Lord, we thank you that revival is here. You are bringing dead things back to life. I pray that whether your people are going after this or, or they're going to stay here and linger, Lord, I ask, let your presence go with us the rest of the day, the rest of the week. Make us aware of your presence, God. Continue to point out to us every day the areas of our heart and life that we can surrender to you. God, put us in those places of silence and solitude so that we can be led to surrender. Jesus, we love you. Be with us today. In your name we pray. And everybody said, amen. You're